Hey everyone, I'm your host Piers Kicks, and welcome back to Metaverse Musings, which is a research-focused podcast that's part of Delphi Digital. We explore the integral components behind what many believe will be the internet's successor, a virtual extension of the natural world where most of us will eventually live, work and play. To some, it represents our next great milestone as a network species, and to others, it is something to fear. With our guests, we discuss the technology, philosophy and culture behind this brave new world. If you're not yet subscribed to the Delphi Research Portal, then I fear for your soul. You're missing out on the most incisive analysis that the digital asset space has to offer. Seriously, check it out. Nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. This podcast features sponsors and any ads are not an endorsement by Delphi Digital and are for informational purposes only. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Metaverse Musings. Today, I am delighted to introduce you all to Jake of CoinFund. Uh, Jake, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Piers. Excited to be here. Can you kick us off by giving us a little bit of background on CoinFund? Uh, I think you know a few people are, uh, around the space will know you guys, but um, obviously you go way back, so we'd, we'd love a bit of color there. Of course. Um, well, let me start with myself. I'm the founder and CEO of CoinFund. Um, I'm a technologist and an engineer and investor. I've been operating in the blockchain space basically since 2011 when I got my first Bitcoin. I launched CoinFund on July 1st of 2015 as one of the first um, you know, digital asset focused investment firms looking at digital assets as its own asset class. Uh, that thesis has worked out dramatically well. Um, and so we're here today mm-hmm. in 2021 looking at what I think is the early adoption of blockchain technologies in in the mainstream world. Um, CoinFund has been a generalist fund. We were based mostly out of New York. We're now a little bit scattered on the East Coast of the United States after COVID. Uh, But we've been investing across the space in different verticals and also different layers of the technology stack from the blockchains themselves to the middleware and infrastructure. And now starting to see kind of early uh, consumer go-to-markets in, in companies. And the last thing to say is um, we've been pretty early investor in the NFT space. We, uh, we did Dapper in 2018. Uh, we're pre-seeders of Rarible.com uh, and are pretty involved with a bunch of different companies in that, in that area. Super neat. Yeah. Well, I, I've often enjoyed reading your pieces you put out uh, around, you know, portfolio companies or otherwise. Um, could, you, could you touch a bit on your sort of background, I guess, prior to crypto as well? Because um, I think uh, especially where sort of investors are concerned that, uh, you know, put out put out content, you have a pretty uh, deep technical understanding of a lot of this stuff, too. So I always really enjoy uh, reading your work there. But um, yeah, wh- where did you kind of acquire that? Thank you. Um, so yeah, I'm, I studied mathematics and computer science. I did the Rutgers Honors Program for undergrad, and then for graduate school, I studied at the Courant Institute of Mathematical Sciences at NYU. I had a 10-year career in technology. I started in the hedge fund world. I was doing you know, high-frequency trading and research and development. I also worked for about two and a half years at Amazon. I was a technical product manager doing ad tech uh, software for them. And then as a CTO of a fintech startup that really researched the, um, you know, the, the, the um, financial models of private companies by sourcing their data from public sources. Uh, so I have a, I'm a pretty technical guy. I'm also a, a digital artist and have done creative things all my life. And so that's why NFTs are a bit of a passion vertical for me. Uh, and I think more recently, I'm kind of like the NFT guy. Um, but my range is a bit broader than that. 
Love it. Yeah. And, and so could you give us some color on um, kind of what the, the, the core thesis of the fund is? I suppose it would have evolved quite a lot over time uh, and what verticals in particular looking at. Obviously, NFTs are a recent one of those. But um, yeah, we'd love to get a bit of a broader picture as well before we jump in. Oh, totally. Um, well, I I like to think that CoinFund takes this very uh, pragmatic approach to investing. I feel like a lot of uh, investors in the space, they're really focused on the assets, the asset class, the idea that, you know, you can get liquidity early, the idea of tokens as a value capture mechanism. I think at CoinFund over the years, what we've realized is that we're actually investing not just in the tokens, but really in the process of convergence, we call it internally. It's the process where blockchain technology gets adopted in the mainstream world. And that's that means absolutely investing in the protocols and the tokens, but it also means investing in the very much uh, traditional companies that are facilitating that process. It means understanding how these technologies are adopted by existing markets, existing companies, banks, governments, regulators, how that process is facilitated by you know, different kinds of protocols and, and, uh, and startups and really investing across the broad spectrum of those things. So, you know, we, we're, we're almost like convergence investors but if you um, if you drill down into the core thesis of what we do, it's really the idea that these things called crypto networks, these like decentralized, open, public, permissionless, composable, um, you know, immutable, publicly owned, publicly governed networks, are creating some really exciting value propositions um, that are very competitive with the way that we normally do things, like facilitating. Uh, you know, products and services through big centralized companies. And we're seeing the process of the adoption of crypto networks playing out in real time um, more and more and more. Um, and, and that's really kind of the core uh, reason why, why we exist as an investor, to invest in that process. Mm. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, 2015 was obviously super early to have a, a sort of formal fund structure up and running, looking at this space. And obviously things changed so fast, but I'm curious when you look back, is there anything that, that kind of really jumps out uh, in terms of how the space has evolved to you over that period? Well, I think, I think a bunch of things, right? Uh, if you want to talk about surprising, isn't it surprising that currently blockchain is being taken mainstream not through decentralized finance and not through currency and not through the payments use case, but really through the use case of digital art, right? Isn't, isn't that surprising? Um, I guess another surprising thing is how fast things have evolved, right? Um, we always have certain expectations about how technology innovation progresses. They're almost always wrong and in blockchain, <laughs> they're wrong in the sense that they come a lot faster uh, than perhaps we, we, we've anticipated. Um, and I guess the other thing that has changed is the profile of the investor, right? Like when we were starting out uh, in 2015, there's a lot of issues in the space that, haven't, that weren't figured out. Like what, you know, should you start a VC fund or a hedge fund or a hybrid fund? What is the standard deal structure of a protocol deal? What are the right papers to sign? You know how how um, you know how founders should be uh, compensated and so forth. 
and I think what we're seeing now is a lot of, you know, we're, we're definitely not there yet, but there's a lot of maturity in the investor space. Like a lot of standardization has happened. Now we have SAFTs and SAFTs. Um, we have um, funds that are specialized in different areas. Like a coin fund, we have a liquid fund, which looks at the later stage, you know, mature liquid assets. But we also have a crypto venture fund, which is looking at the early stages. Um, funds that are crypto native will also participate in this intermediate stage called, you know, where the networks are being bootstrapped called, I guess, through active network participation. So if you're a crypto fund, you probably should be staking on your portfolio networks or adding liquidity to your decentralized lending protocols, um, you know, or somehow just participating actively, uh, you know, in, in your project. So maybe those are a couple of things. Yeah, absolutely. That's super interesting. And then uh, I'm curious, like going back to when you were sort of starting out, um, what, what would you say was really the sort of tipping point around building conviction in this uh, back then? I mean, obviously great that, um, you know, things have evolved now. It sounds like, you know, you've got multiple funds going, but uh, back then I assume it was a, a sort of much broader and, and looser kind of focus. I wonder how that all came together. Yeah. So we like to think about now that we've raised our third venture fund, um, we like to think about like what were historically the focuses of those funds. And we, we sort of say the following, our first fund was looking at the market and saying, what is there besides Bitcoin? Like Bitcoin is the first and it's the project that introduced the technology to the world, but how is this technology going to be used? And then the 2018 fund, um, it's really looking at kind of the this idea of a crypto network or a protocol it's looking at the ICO landscape and it's saying, what is there beyond ICOs? In other words, can these protocols actually generate real cash flows and have assets that capture the value of those cash flows in a fundamental manner? And this past summer, um, as we saw kind of DeFi blossom, we answered that question. Like, here's a bunch of protocols that are now generating real cash flows. And so this third fund, um, as we look forward into 2021, excuse me, and beyond, it's really about like looking for those early consumer products that are now taking us to market with real people. And I, and I would say, you know, if you look at MBA Top Shot, which is a product of Dapper Labs that runs in the Flow blockchain, um, that is a phenomenal example of early mainstream adoption. Um, like never before, this product has been able to capture revenue from traditional mainstream users by giving them, you know, experience that they can actually uh, use. So I would say yeah, that that's been the, the progression of our thinking. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on the kind of consumer facing side of things. It's super exciting to see this, uh, you know, this, this sort of surface area of crypto uh, appeal to kind of a, an entirely different profile of investor and, and enthusiast. It's super interesting to see. Um, which which leads me on actually you, you mentioned uh, you know you you have your own sort of creative streak and uh, work on on different art projects yourself could you tell us a bit about those and, and maybe also first edition which I know you're a part of oh great yeah so first edition xyz is uh, is a digital art gallery it's a project that I started uh, back in 2019 uh, as an investor in a project called additional so additional was Kind of an Instagram where you, as the creator of the post, could create, you know, you could upload some some picture uh, or art content, and then 
the app would tokenize that into a number of editions. The creator would get the first edition, and the followers of the uh, you know of that of that influencer could snag the other edition sort of for free. Um, and this created like a really interesting dynamic where those edition ones uh, ended up being like a lot more valuable because only the original creator could confer it to someone. And so that's actually where the name first edition comes from. And over time, that gallery, um, you know, which is basically my sole proprietorship, it just would support crypto artists and the crypto art movement. I uh, would just go purchase uh, work on the market. We, we did a number of gallery openings uh, in, in some virtual world um, meetups and things like that around this new kind of art movement, which is really taking people who aren't in the professional art world, but who have a passion for creating art and especially digital art and giving them an opportunity to sell their art using blockchain technology to global markets. And so the gallery has now a pretty interesting collection of works. Um, it owns CryptoKitty number 12. It owns Dmitry Cherniak, a kind of popular generative artist. It owns his first ever NFT that I helped him to decide to tokenize. Um, just the other day, I helped Susan Kerr uh, create her first NFT. Susan Kerr is a... Uh, famous icon designer. She used to work at Apple and at Next for Steve Jobs. She is responsible for, you know, the smiling Mac icon <laughs> uh, and others, and also the, um, the solitaire cards from Microsoft Windows Solitaire. And Susan was like super excited to, to learn about this very democratizing technology where creators like her with digital works have such a great fit um, with, you know, with blockchain uh, NFTs and do, really don't need um, a huge platform in order to sell their works. And, uh, and so we, we tokenized something together on, on Rarible and it was, uh, it was called Donut. It was an icon of a, of a donut. Uh, you could check it out. So that's been sort of the history of first edition. And um, now we're thinking about doing uh, some more with it, but we'll keep you posted on that. Yeah, please do. Sounds uh, sounds super neat. Um, I'm curious then. So currently, when you're engaging these people in these conversations, um, or perhaps trying to explain NFTs to others, um, I wonder how are you kind of communicating the core value proposition of these uh, technologies to those that you're trying to introduce to the space? To NFTs specifically? Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. NFTs and, and crypto more broadly, like sort of the, the behaviors that are unlocked, I guess. Um, yeah. Curious how you're kind of articulating that to those you're, you're introducing this to. Well, I think in the in kind of the art sense of NFTs and, and, and I say the art sense of NFTs because NFTs are so broadly applicable, not just to art, but also to all these different other types of digital content like music and video and audio and um, I don't know, metaverse assets and stock photos and 3D models and uh, uh, and icons and fonts and domain names and so forth. But if, you know, it, it, that adoption has started with digital artists. And so I've had occasion to um, help a number of artists sort of get into the space and, and work with a number of artists that are already in the space. And the basic value proposition, I think, for them is that they're finally able to get a sustainable business model where they can do something that they love, namely creating art, uh, sell that art on a global market 
to an audience. Uh, and this is a process that is not that um, different to what happened with social media, right? In, in, you know, in the past, we've had television stars, movie stars, music stars. If you think about Michael Jackson, this is a, a star that was known on every continent of the world. You know, someone who's just incredibly well known, you know, throughout the universe, if you will. Uh, and then these days, we don't really have that kind of profile. I mean, we, we still have big megastars, but we have this much longer and fatter tail of influencers on TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube, and Twitch, and so on and so forth. Um, and they still have sizable audiences, but there's a lot more of them, and those audiences are generally smaller. And so this process of changing the power law of how influencers um, are distributed throughout the world is the same thing that's happening with the power law of how creators are distributed in the world. And so in the past, by sort of the economic nature of you know, media and the art world, you could have very, very few artists who can make a living sustainably doing this all day. And using blockchain technology, that power law changes and you open up a much bigger middle market of creators who can now sustainably monetize. And I think that is an incredibly disruptive um, value proposition for that space. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's really amazing to see. I think a, a lot of digital artists I've been following uh, for many years, you know, everyone now is uh, sort of on the, on, on the NFT train. I'm, um, <clears throat> I'm really intrigued as well to see how many people who, you know, perhaps are really talented, but have never, you know, had that as a feasible option now actually do decide to pursue uh, those talents further and monetize them properly. I think it's, um, you know, pretty, pretty exciting time, uh, definitely in, in, in the digital art world. I'm curious, um, obviously the crypto art side of things is, is super interesting. It's definitely one that uh, seems pretty close to your heart, but um, some of the sort of other areas of, uh, of, of application for NFTs or perhaps some of the other really interesting areas of sort of, um, you know, the evolving infrastructure around them, whether that's sort of fractionalization or pricing. Um, I'm curious what some of the most interesting uh, and exciting uh, sort of, you know, areas of interest are for you at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we on the market, what we see is uh, we quickly went from, you know, just static visual art to uh, uh, to dynamic visual art. So we had we had a lot of um, animated gifs and little video clips uh, as NFTs. Um, that also includes NBA Top Shot, right? Where uh, NBA moments are like little video clips. Uh, we then quickly went to music. Uh, MP3s can now be tokenized. And as a matter of fact, we saw a pretty popular band, the Kings of Leon, launch their own NFTs uh, for, their, for their next album. And, uh, and people could buy that and, and own the album. And we could talk about that model and, and what's possible there. But music has been definitely an interesting area. I'm an investor in a, uh, in a startup called async.art. And async is actually starting to push the boundaries of what it means to be, you know, kind of like visual art. So in, in async, um, you can have multiple layers in a work and different owners can own different layers. And there's also, an, you know, an owner of the composite of the work or the master 
layer of the work. And so that's an interesting optimization in terms of ownership, but also those owners can change the states of that work. So this work is dynamic and can react to changes in state. It can react to other like environmental variables such as the date, the time of day, the price of ether, the, you know, and, and what have you. And so what you really get here is programmable media. This is a, this is a new medium that arose because blockchain technology makes it efficient to, uh, you know, to, to sort of create these things, own these things, transfer these things, and, um, and sell them for money on, on open markets. Um, also very interestingly, I think there's a huge design space in written content where NFTs can capture some of the value um, that written content can actually accrue, right? So a very interesting project is mirror.xyz, which is essentially kind of a medium, it's a blogging platform, but where uh, writers can crowdfund works and have an NFT that denotes the ownership of the written content, uh, which can also trade uh, hands in secondary markets. And I think there's a very long tail of other applications, like I rattled some off before. Um, there's also kind of financial, the financial view of NFTs, right? Like you can imagine the deeds to houses, the deeds to cars, uh, falling under the same kind of um, structural rubric as an NFT. And my sense is that when we finish tokenizing the digital content in the world as NFTs, we're going to go to physical goods as well, uh, like, like housing and, and houses and cars. Now, what, what is happening if we step back and wear our investor hats, what we're doing is we're taking this asset class of ownership of digital goods and eventually physical goods. And this asset class has historically been extremely illiquid. Like if you think about movie rights or royalty rights or the rights to own an artwork or the rights to, um, you know, to, to the royalty stream of some font creation or something like that, those kinds of rights have always been illiquid paper contracts. And in putting them in the form of NFTs on open public markets, we're essentially doing this huge IPO, which might be, you know, if you ask me, um, one of the biggest financial events that we've seen. So, so that's the kind of the exciting opportunity uh, from the investor side. Absolutely. It's super, super interesting, especially uh, when we start thinking about the real world tokenization, uh, real world asset tokenization. Um, what to, to your mind, though, what are the biggest sort of points of friction there? And have you seen any interesting solutions to those? I know there's a couple of projects starting to look at it. Um, I appreciate it's probably a bit further downstream, but it's definitely an area that intrigues me massively. Uh, I think the way we can kind of expand the universe of collateral available to DeFi too could become super interesting uh, through all of that. But yeah, curious around those friction points and any potential kind of solutions you've seen to them. Yeah, good question. I mean, we're still super early in this space. I think what we've managed to do so far is we've created basic infrastructure for NFTs, like how do we issue them? You know, how do we put them on the marketplace and exchange them between folks? Um, and, uh, and a little bit around financialization of NFTs, which is the process by which you do things like create liquidity for them through a mechanism or use them as collateral in a loan um, or lending context. Um, 
you know, fractionalize them, uh, co-own them, co-govern them, or really like a, a bunch of other models are, are, are possible. Um, and so we're at, at the very early stages of that process and we have relatively little um, standardization. So, so one dimension of standardiz standardization is what are the standards around this and what blockchains do they live on, right? So most, uh, most NFTs today live on Ethereum, but you're also starting to see standards pop up on other blockchains like Polkadot and Nier. Um, and, um, and really I anticipate that, you know, we'll have NFTs kind of all over the place. Um, the other really important side, especially for creators is that one of the core value propositions of NFTs is this royalty stream that can more or less be uh, respected on chain through technology. And, um, and there's no kind of overall overarching standard for royalties, right? It's something that platforms today kind of implement in a bespoke, bespoke manner. But where everything is going is that that should be like a standard feature like of any NFT platform. And then different platforms should respect uh, the royalty uh, schemes of, uh, of different creators. That's another friction. Um, and then of course, like if you read, you know, my thesis, which is called all digital content is going on chain on the CoinFund blog. then my view of, of NFTs are as I call them liquid intellectual property or liquid property rights. Mm. Um, and this speaks to the fact that, you know, we always have that question from newcomers in this space. They said, well, why would I, why would I buy this, you know, JPEG image or PNG when I could just right click and download it on my desktop? And of course, the answer to that question is because you're not buying the JPEG. You are buying the rights, the property rights, the JPEG, the, the intellectual property, the, the right to own, to sell, to lend, to make money off of, to use in a movie, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever the creator has conferred, whatever rights the creator has conferred to you. And so that piece of the machinery is also very nascent. It's like we need to think about how do we implement within the issuance process this idea of conf conferral of property rights. It could be through legal contracts. It could be through certain kinds of you know, on-chain dispute resolution mechanisms that we could do that. But that space is like super duper early. And of course, like one of the, oh, this is the last thing I'll say, you know, when you think about fractionalizing ownership in real estate. So like the deeds to, you know, office buildings and things like that, the Empire State Building, probably one of the major blockers there is compliance, right? You really need security tokens in the US um, to come to fruition and, um, you know, and, and, and to enable that market. And then you could start plugging that into all the other infrastructure we've built around NFTs. And I feel like at CoinFund, we have this sort of contrarian view uh, a lot of folks have left security tokens for dead back in 2017. But there's actually a lot of great reasons why security tokens could come back with a vengeance. And one of those reasons is, hey, we got all this real estate in the world to tokenize. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you touched upon in there, um, you know, how you view maybe lots of different NFT standards cropping up on different chains and whatever. Um, I'm curious if you could elaborate on that a bit. I'm, I'm kind of of the view that you know, one of the really exciting value propositions of these things is this concept of the universal digital representation and ownership layer. And I feel like 
you know, whilst a lot of these other chains or sort of different standards, uh, you know, promise the sort of two-way bridge at some point in time, um, you know, it could be difficult to get there and kind of clunky. I, I wonder what your thoughts are around that. I feel like, um, you know, Ethereum-based NFTs really winning and out would, would, would like, if, if that were to not happen, it would somehow diminish that idea of the universal digital representation layer. Yeah, um, great question. I mean, I think like one thing to say is a lot of the ideological preferences or technological preferences or platform preferences that we have as blockchain and crypto enthusiasts or, or people who have been around the space for a long time and use these products for a long time are not shared with us by mainstream users. So mainstream users are coming into the space and they are just looking for experiences that they can use and experiences that are familiar. Um, and so what this tells me as an investor is it's not really about Ethereum. It's about who can deliver you know, those experiences effectively. And so the space kind of bifurcates into you know, enthusiasts and, and mainstreamers and, uh, and those users use the technologies um, differently. Um, I agree, there's a bunch of sort of practical technical challenges to moving NFTs all, you know, around the place. So I'll give you some examples. Um, a lot of people talk about optimistic rollups as a layer two scalability solution uh, for Ethereum. And they are, they're a great technology and super interesting. But one of the disadvantages that they have is in the realm of NFTs. If you put, if you create an NFT on an optimistic rollup, then your NFT and really any digital asset is gonna be subject to this long roll-off period where to sort of get it off of the layer two and go back to Ethereum proper, you're gonna wait like one to two weeks or something like that. Now, in the case of fungibles, you can actually solve that problem by enlisting the help of an intermediary who'll just give you the tokens up front, and then they'll personally take on that roll-off risk. And of course, they'll charge you a little bit of commission for that, for that privilege. But with NFTs, it gets a little bit more complicated because um, you know, I don't, I can't like give you the NFT. They're not fungible. There's only one of them, right? It can't exist in two places at once. And even if I could, if they had like multiple editions or something, they're really hard to price. So I can't know exactly how much value I need to provide for you. And so that's a huge risk. So what I'm trying to say is overall, there's like a technical reason why optimistic rollups are not a great fit mm. um, with, with the NFT space. And you can also look at that differently, right? You could say, well, that's okay. I'm never going to get off of the roll-up. And that's actually a good reason why people will stay on the roll-up is because it's hard to get off. And of course, the problem with that argument is, well, in order for that to work, you need everyone to coordinate into that same you know, network and solution. And of course, there's many different solutions in the, in the market. So there's no guarantee that they will. Sure. And I think, I mean, a lot of the side chains, you have the similar sort of delays in terms of getting back to the base chain. I'm also curious, you know, how, um, you know, like Immutable X are pursuing around NFTs in particular using the zero knowledge rollups. Like, uh, can you can you comment on that by comparison at a high level? Yeah, um, I think I think zero knowledge rollups will have a better profile uh, for, you know, for the problem that I just said. 
And part of the reason is because they don't have as long of a roll-off period as optimistic roll-ups do. They use sort of the strength of zero-knowledge proofs to provide like kind of good security uh, to get off the layer. And so I think I do think they mitigate that problem. But the you know the other problem with zero-knowledge roll-ups is that people who are building on that layer um, really are looking for a smart contract uh, programming facility. And in the context of uh, zero knowledge, um, that architecture just sort of blows up all of the standards around how to program smart contracts. It requires a new programming language. Um, it requires new limitations in what that programming language can do. And today, there's really not um, sort of a general smart contracting facility. Like we see rollups performing um, kind of specific tasks like, oh, you can send mm, tokens back and forth very quickly on this rollup, or you can even do sort of um, AMM curves, right? But we don't yet have general computation on top of zero knowledge tech. So I think that will come you know, over the next years. But we're not there yet. And so every one of these solutions, they have like great uh, features in, in some senses and like um, devastating trade-offs in, in mm. other senses. Yeah, super interesting. So if I was to be really annoying and suggest that you had to choose weighing all of the trade-offs and all of their merits, um, what would you say like uh, is, is the most attractive solution? I know it's still early days and whatnot, but uh, what's interesting that we haven't mentioned? Well, I, you know, my take on rollups is, <laughs> unfortunately, as, a, as an Ethereum scalability solution, I feel like we are overestimating them a little bit. And so if you actually look at uh, other base layers, uh, for example, you could take a look at a project called Moonbeam, uh, which is a Polkadot parachain. And Moonbeam has some of the best, like, inter, you know, Ethereum interoperability profile that's available. For example, it supports the EVM, it supports Solidity. It solves the gas fee problem because you're running on the Polkadot proof of stake uh, facility available there. It has a bridge to Ethereum. It has Ethereum style addresses. It has, um, you know, uh, kind of compatibility basically with MetaMask through its RPC nodes. And you can basically like very easily switch between, you know, uh, the Ethereum network and, and, the, and the Moonbeam network. And so the, the value proposition of Moonbeam to uh, projects that have a code base in Solidity on Ethereum today is simply just redeploy your contracts on Moonbeam and then you have solved uh, you know, the Gatsby issue um, and you your customers can use all the same primitives like addresses and MetaMask to interact with your product. And that's like a really, you know, that's an example of a solution that doesn't even require like, uh, you know, kind of a roll-up technology. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll have to link to that one so people can check it out. Um, I'm really curious to get your thoughts as well, sort of marrying your technical background with the with a good understanding of what, you know, artists and creators and I guess uh, the, the, the mainstream consumers also looking for. How are you thinking about the marketplace landscape? I know you guys are back as a rareable. Obviously, they're kind of uh, in, in competition with OpenSea in some respects, I suppose. And then also more broadly, I mean, obviously, there are, there are multiple art-focused exchanges now, but if we could 
start, I guess, with the with the generalized, more universal marketplaces like Rarible and OpenSea. I'd be curious to get your thoughts around, um, you know, how Rarible is differentiated and what's interesting about it to you. Absolutely. Um, well, uh, you know, speaking as Rarible's uh, advisor and pre-seed investor, um, I've had a lot of uh, interaction with the team and, and helped to shape the product over uh, over the last year or so. I think one of my core contributions to the project was to say, um, you know, I think that we should use the core value propositions of decentralized uh, networks and be the first marketplace that is community owned and governed. And so this led to the creation of Rary token. Rary token is a token that mostly is distributed through the act of uh, you know, buying and selling on the marketplace. So if you transact in the marketplace on a weekly basis, you'll participate in the, uh, in the Rary rewards uh, that are available there. And in accumulating Rary, you will become a co-owner of the platform and you'll be able to use Rary like over time, you know, we're in a gradual decentralization process, but over time you'll be able to vote um, in the network about what features there are, you'll be able to help moderate the network, you'll be able to help curate the network. Uh, and my hope and is that one day the token holders might vote to redistribute also the, the revenue of the network to, um, to themselves. And so the key thing to know about Rarible is that over time, Rarible is built uh, on Rarible protocol, on a totally decentralized crypto network whose value capture uh, goes to the token eventually and is co-owned by all of the users and backers and supply siders and buyers and collectors that transact on that protocol. Interestingly, Rarible.com is a marketplace that surfaces, you know, it's kind of the reference implementation that surfaces what is happening on this protocol. And as such, I think, I think that makes Rarible like a very differentiated product compared to kind of the other marketplaces that are out there in the market uh, because the vast majority of them are sort of centralized marketplace approaches, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's, it's really neat. C could you um, elaborate a little bit on, on, on kind of the difference between the, the protocol and I guess the marketplace front end there, just, just for those listening, it's, uh, it sounds super interesting. It sounds as though oh, yeah. other marketplaces could be kind of spun out on, on top of it. Yep, absolutely. So the, the beautiful part of this is that you can imagine someone saying, hey, you know what? I don't think that Rarible's marketplace is the appropriate user experience for I don't know, the creators of fonts, or maybe for well-known artists. And instead of using the Rarible Marketplace front-end, um, we actually can create our own website, our own front-end, our own experience. But the back-end, in other words, the, the issuance and the exchange that is facilitated by the Rarible smart contracts, that's going on in the protocol. That's not something that we have to re-implement from scratch. That's just a set of rails and tools that we can use to execute on this vision. And what's super interesting is that the protocol will compensate those front ends for that. So just like in fungibles exchange, when you add liquidity into 
a liquidity pool on Balancer or on Uniswap. Uh, the front ends that bring NFT exchange and therefore liquidity into this non-fungible protocol will also be compensated for that. Um, and so it's a, it's a coordination mechanism uh, to get everyone sort of aligned on the same rails. Now, if I step back a bit, this structure is actually very well known and almost becoming kind of a standard structure in, in blockchain. And what do I mean by that? I mean, you usually have a team that starts a project. That team builds a decentralized network. In this case, that's Rarible protocol, the protocol for issuance, exchange, and probably eventually distribution um, you know, of, of NFT assets. And then they build a centralized business that monetizes by, you know, through the efficiencies of that protocol. And in this case, that's rarible.com or like rarible incorporated. That's creating the best sort of user experiences on top. And the last thing to say is there's a lot of confusion as we sort of noted in our roll-up discussion, there's so many technologies out there. And all the NFT companies right now, they have to make a decision like, do I build on Ethereum or do I build in a new base layer? Or do I build on this rollup or that rollup? Um, and one of the things that, that these protocols make easier is the view that these protocols will be cross-chain over time. And so you can imagine uh, Rarible protocol being available on, on you know, Matic, uh, on Dapper, uh, Flow, uh, maybe on Moonbeam, you know, and so on and so forth. And so it starts mm -hmm. to ease this um, difficult choice for creators of like what platform to build on. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's uh, super interesting and, and really useful color. I appreciate that. Um, I, I'm curious then around where you see NFTs heading, coinciding with real world assets, the increased you know, financialization of them, take your pick. But um, what are some of the interesting longer term ideas you have for how these things are going to evolve? I mean, I I really thoroughly enjoy most of your pieces, but your uh, you know uh, all digital content is going on chain piece in particular. I thought was pretty pretty uh, forwards looking, and I totally totally love that idea of liquid IP and whatnot. But um, yeah, curious about some of the the really cool ideas uh, about where this could go longer term. Nice, yeah, thank you. Um, well, I would say like the <laughs> the 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 next sort of stage in the NFT space that's starting to come to fruition now is this idea of NFT liquidity. Uh, I think for a long time, folks looked at fungibles. They said, oh, okay, well, this is a pretty liquid asset class now. We have, you know, AMMs and DEXs and centralized exchanges and all these, you know, mechanisms to create liquidity, like liquidity mining programs. Um, and however, when we look at the NFT space, we need to facilitate exchange directly between a buyer and a seller. That's hard. There's not a lot of players. There's not a, like, not a lot of massively adopted marketplaces. And so generally this is a uh, very illiquid asset class and is generally liable to stay that way. And what I, um, what I write about in my other piece on NFTs, which is called appraisal games and the NFT liquidity problem is that actually um, NFT liquidity is also just a mechanism design problem. So just like DEXs and liquidity mining programs have dramatically reduced the time to liquidity for a new token in the market. I believe that um, certain mechanisms will dramatically increase the liquidity of all kinds of NFTs. Now, on a practical level, what does that mean exactly? Well, it kind of means that 
as an artist, I can create a painting, turn it into an NFT, and then go to a smart contract, get it valued, and receive money for it right away. And that's kind of a disruptive value proposition. Um, now, I also posit that once you have a mechanism to do that, um, then you can build a whole finance on that, right? You can, you know, it becomes a lot easier to create automated lending platforms where which use NFTs as collateral. It enables the creation of a NFT native decentralized exchange where you put in two crypto kitties and you get a crypto punk back, right? Just like you do on Uniswap with tokens today. Uh, you could probably create better derivatives. You can create better, uh, you know, financial services in general around NFTs. And all of this stuff, you know, this, this idea of like NFT liquidity, it hinges on solving this one problem, which is the price discovery problem. How do I create a fair, reasonable, knowledgeable, you know, valuation for one of these assets? And that's why I'm like super excited to uh, be co-leading a coin fund, a funding around it, a company called Upshot, uh, mm -hmm. which is a pure prediction oracle protocol. That's a mouthful. But what it basically is, it's a protocol that will <laughs> enable a network of essentially experts to appraise NFTs and create on-chain pricing for them. That is reasonable. And once that pricing goes on-chain, I think we open up a lot of liquidity um, in the NFT world. Absolutely, I'm really excited for uh, for Upshot to launch. I don't think it's uh, don't think it's too long now. Too too long now. Excited to see how other uh, projects sort of leverage it as well. Um, what would you say are some of the key trends to watch this year? Uh, now that the perhaps more consumer facing side of crypto appears to be building momentum. Absolutely. Um, well, one thing that we definitely see is a lot of traditional companies and you know celebrities and influencers and ip holders realizing that uh nfts might be an easy uh an interesting mechanism to create engagement with their audiences and so if you're like an ip owner i mean imagine a company like i don't know disney right who has a lot of ip uh related to its movies and uh you know and tv shows um, put some of that IP on chain as NFTs. Well, it's fairly cheap to, you know, to create those assets. Um, but arguably, they'll get more engagement, especially in a context where a lot of people are at home and in quarantine. Um, and even Taco Bell has done this. I think Taco Bell the other day minted some NFTs on a rareable um, Kind of as a half joke, I think also Charmin paper uh, minted some NFTs and Rarible, and so that gives you just a glimpse into, you know, the tip of the iceberg that's that's possible here. Uh, and of course, again, NBA Top Shot, like NBA, is a huge uh, IP holder, you know, in the in the basketball world. So so definitely, there is a process where you know that's happening. Um, I think we're going to start to see a lot more um, innovations on what interactive NFTs will be. Um, there are folks that are putting in AI characters into NFT form and things like that using uh, GPT-3 to, uh, to create like interactivity that is also transferable um, as a non-fungible. 
I think we're going to see a huge amount of basically NFT times DeFi services. So again, like lending, borrowing, derivatives, um, everything that we see in kind of the fungible world, but now specialized to this non-fungible asset class. Um, And I guess like the broader view, the more long-term view is um, it's going to become a lot more standard for creatives to make money almost in this freelance way. It's like a freelance creator uh, out there in the world selling assets directly to their customers. And that goes for artists, but it also goes for designers and font creators and movie producers and musicians. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's uh, super interesting, especially around the, um, you know, creators, I think streamers and all of them really increasingly are looking at this. It's a super interesting way to to monetize your audience in general, but especially to tap into that very top 1% of fans who are willing to, you know, help contribute to these uh, absurd price tags. Um, but yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm curious to what extent do you subscribe to this idea of a metaverse? And for the sake of clarity, I'll define it as a persistent live digital universe that affords individuals a sense of agency, social presence, and shared spatial awareness, along with the ability to participate in an extensive virtual economy with societal impact. Um, I, I subscribe to it. I think we're, you know, we're partially living in it. Um, I think we'll see... We'll experience it visually a lot more when, when there's greater adoption of things like AR glasses and VR. And actually, saw someone tweet about an interface where you put a device. It's kind of like a bracelet. You put it around your your hands, and then you can have virtual hands on your computer to like move windows, like literally by holding them with your hand. Very cool. Um, But but by and large, I feel like a lot of the aspects of the definition that you just read out are there today. Um, We have shared spaces for sure in the form of, you know, discord and community groups. And, you know, one big famous popular one is perhaps wall street bets on Reddit. Um, Someone wrote the other day, uh, the folks from the wrote something along the lines of that, um, that the natural unit of coordination on the internet is a swarm and you know, we see that all over the place in crypto and, and beyond. Uh, and then, you know, through blockchain technology, we also give the, that much needed last ingredient that we haven't really been able to have in the metaverse until now, which is the financialization, which is the idea that, you know, you can have digital money and digital assets that are valuable in the shared space and transferable. And so it enables virtual commerce. So, so I think we're kind of early in the in the visuals of the metaverse, but we're actually kind of advanced in the other aspects of it, which is the, the shared spaces, the the swarms, the organizations uh, that are possible, and also the financialization that is such a key ingredient there. Hmm, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting point actually. That the um, mediums through which we interact with it maybe are, are relatively less evolved, um, but you know, some of the other integral components are actually well on their way to flourishing. That's an uh, interesting thought. Mm-hmm. So what is one thing that has become clear to you since you embarked on your crypto journey that you wish you had known before? <laughs> uh, 
all, all the infinite learnings. I mean, there's always there's always the you know kind of the assets that you wish you were participating in early, but there's just there's so much activity in this space. This is one of the most active, most rapidly evolving, rapidly iterating spaces. You know, one technology comes along every three months, every six months, you know, and kind of changes your view of everything. And so there, I guess there's always, there's always those moments. But the other thing about being in crypto that I've learned is just to sort of, you know, take things as they come and, and sort of respect the path uh, that you're on. And, and for me, what that means is like knowing the technology and, and really like taking an effort to understand the technical points. Knowing those technical points allows me to identify trends that are happening. And then I, I can be in, in the trend that, it, that really speaks to me. Uh, I could be an investor there. I could build a lot of confidence in the teams operating in that space. And you know what? You don't have to be in every different kind of technology that exists. You just have to be in the ones that, um, that really resonate with you. And for me, that's been NFTs, DeFi, scalability technology, consensus technology, and probably now um, early stage consumer uh, products built on blockchain tech. Super interesting. I love it. Um, heading into the more sort of generic closing questions now, I have to ask, what is your favorite video game ever? <laughs> um, you know, I'm not a huge gamer, but there was a time in my life where I was more of a gamer than I am today. And at that time, I really liked Counter-Strike. Hell yeah. It's a great game. It's a great game to have been into. <laughs> yeah. So uh, aside from games then, more broadly, what is the most impactful digital experience you've ever had? Ooh. Uh, you know, there, there have been several times when, you know, I've been in a virtual world um, and, you know, in a group of people, maybe it was some kind of auction or it was happening in crypto voxels or sometimes I've done panels um, recently, I did kind of a private talk inside of CryptoVoxels to some of the members of the Urbit community that have mm -hmm. their own, you know, quote unquote, guild. And this idea of being invited to speak to a group of people who are interconnected, you know, not by geography, not necessarily by, by like their, their jurisdictional culture, but really by their digitally native culture and, and sort of technological interests. That's just kind of an amazing, amazing experience. Um, and I would say, I would say I've, like in the course of being in blockchain, like I've seen a lot of firsts too, like things that you never thought you'd see. Like for example, I remember back in, um, back in 2016 when, when the DAO hack happened and Ethereum split into two chains, like a cryptocurrency split in half, like Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. I mean, this is kind of an event that you really had to process and, and really like understand what was what was happening. And it was like not a, like it was unlike anything that that kind of came before it, um, you know, in my in my digital explorations. Um, and finally, I would say, like the the times when I'm most impressed and most satisfied with my work in the blockchain space is when I see like real impact like when when someone who didn't have opportunities before 
um, or had degraded opportunities could use technology to elevate the opportunities that are available to them. And that could mean like breaking out as a digital artist. It could mean, you know, selling a work for the first time. It could mean achieving some kind of financial uh, investment result or return that otherwise wouldn't be available. It could be being in some kind of country where there's no services, but then you can get those services on your phone. You know, like when, when I see that kind of impact, that's what makes blockchain worth it for me. Absolutely. We, uh, we love to hear it. Um, finally, out of all the books you've ever read, which one has resonated with you the most? <laughs> oh, oh man. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I'm like a few classes away from a comparative literature major in, in undergrad. Um, and so there's a whole, there's a whole body of like fiction I could name. Um, but let me think about sort of like nonfiction. I would say, I would say actually like, given that the last um, maybe five or six years of my life, I've really been in, in sort of the startup world. I would say Peter Thiel's Zero to One uh, has actually been a really helpful kind of guide and, and way of framing sort of the startup world for me. Yeah, it's an excellent book. Um, Wicked. Well, Jake, uh, I've got, got through all the questions I wanted to ask. Um, really appreciate you making the time and coming on. Um, super interesting to, to learn a bit more about how you're thinking about the space and all, all that you've been up to over these uh, last few years. Um, for those listening that want to follow along and, and keep up to date with your thoughts, um, where's the best place to find you? Uh, yeah, um, I'm probably like mostly on Twitter at JBRUKH, Jaybrook. Um, you can also read some of my articles on the CoinFund blog. That's blog.coinfund.io. If you want to check out the art gallery, check out firstedition.xyz. Perfect. Jake, thank you for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Thanks, Piers. Really appreciate you having me.